0: What if I was completely authentic with my own pain? I stopped with all the bullshit and stopped with trying to be anything else other than let me write something that is very authentically myself. I sat down to write this film about grief and about loss, but also about how one stands back up. As a writer, this is what's gurgling inside of you. And when you sit down and stare at the blank cursor to see what's gonna come out, this is what came out.
1: We all face difficult experiences at some point in our lives. Loss, grief, disappointment. But what if we could transform our pain into something beautiful? What if we could use our creativity to process our emotions and in turn transmute them into something that speaks to others, serves as a communal salve, helps us better understand our own pain and in turn illustrates that hope, help and healing is possible. Well, today we explore the art of understanding, accepting, and processing emotion with the incredibly talented actor, writer, director, and new friend, Zach Braff. Many of you may know Zach from the hit TV show, Scrubs, or perhaps from his seminal directorial debut, Garden State, which was a much celebrated independent film that Zach wrote, directed and starred in alongside Natalie Portman. But today we dive into the creative process behind Zach's newest directorial effort, A Good Person, which is this really beautiful story about a young woman played by the incredibly talented Florence Pugh, whose world crumbles in the wake of surviving just an unimaginable tragedy. It's a story about grief, it's about addiction, forgiveness, trust, it's about friendship. And most importantly, the messy path to sobriety, to becoming whole, which are all themes very close to my heart, of course, that I relate to deeply through my own lived experience. And which I think Zach renders with a very keen appreciation for the complexity and the nuance of this emotional landscape, as well as this just incredible degree of accuracy that's rarely portrayed in cinema. I got a couple more things I would very much like to mention before we dig into this one, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. I'm super proud to announce Today, we explore the themes of addiction, compassion, forgiveness, and self-discovery that the film grapples with. In addition to discussing Zach's background and his personal relationship with creativity, his creative process, we talk about what happens when you create with authenticity, when you're able to find presence in pain and what it means to take all of that and create meaning for yourself. We also discuss Zach's own personal journey in bringing this particular story to life and the impact that he hopes it will have on audiences. Zach is an artist in the truest sense of the word. I really love getting to know him through this conversation and it's just a privilege to share his wisdom and experience with you today. Final note, if you care about independent cinema like I do, if you enjoy mature, fair, great writing, great acting, and look, if you just wanna be entertained because this movie is that, as well as quite funny at times, then please make a point of going to the theater this weekend and checking it out. A Good Person Opens Nationwide, March 24th. How long it remains in the theaters is kind of up to you. So if you enjoy this conversation, and I think you will, let's uh, help Zach out a little bit and make this one a hit. And with that, here we go. This is me and Zach Braff.
0: Do you run every single day?
1: No, I've got like lower back issues right now. So I'm actually benched from running at the moment, doing all these weird, Exercises to try to alleviate my back pain, mm. but I might be looking at surgery, so I'm a little
0: hampered. Brett Goldstein, you know that actor from Ted Lasso who plays uh, mm-hmm. Roy Kent uh-huh. Do you watch that show?
1: a little bit uh. I'm like one of the few people that hasn't like gone deep on on Ted Lasso. (laughs) That's why I'm
0: I'm invested because I didn't. I know, I I know. But anyway. um, The famous biscuit episode. I have lower back issues too. And I saw him at a party and he goes, I want you to read this book. I'm someone who's had back surgery and I'm gonna send you a book. I want you to get this book. Uh He goes, it's all in your mind.
1: Yeah, the Sarno book. book. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, the Sarno book. Did you read it? I've
0: got a great story about it, but finish your thought. But anyway, I'm like, I'm literally at this get together with a fucking back brace on. Mm Hmm. And he hugs me, and he feels it, and he goes, "I've had surgery, I've gone down the wormhole, and you're going to roll your eyes at me, but you should read this book." And so I haven't read the book yet, but I ordered the book.
1: Yeah, so it's by this guy, I believe it's Paul Sarno, and Sarno it's some, definitely I can't the last. remember the title, but it's something like Healing Back Pain. And the thesis of this book is essentially that not all back pain, but certain types of back pain are really the result of unhealed emotional trauma. Mm. And if you go into that and heal that, you will release whatever it is that's causing you that pain. I believe the hypothesis. It is a good hypothesis. I think there's truth in that. And that book has been recommended to me so many times by so many people over the years. And I consistently resisted it. (laughs) I was like, you you don't understand. You know, you don't understand this is real and I've got MRIs and like the whole thing. I've tried all these alternative modalities. And then I was at a birthday party, maybe six months ago, talking to a PT person and a breathwork person. And then up walks Toby McGuire. (laughs) And he's like, are you talking about back pain? And then he tells his story of back pain, and he refers this book, right? And I was like, okay, I've been referred this book a million times, but I've Spider never Man. been referred by Sp- this <laughs> book by like an A-list you know, actor. Spider like, Spider-Man is, this is, a, is this the voice of God? And I was like, all right, I'm gonna get this book. And I downloaded it on Audible, and I went on a long bike ride, and I listened to the whole thing. And I was like, okay, it's in my mind. And then the next day I like went out and went running and kind of pushed myself a little bit more than I should have. And I thought, well, I'm not hurting myself because it's all in my mind, right? And then my back seized up and I was like in bed for two days. Oh no.
0: <laughs> so, well, that, yeah. that book might not be intended yeah. for like mega marathoners like you, but for people like me who can point to, yeah, I have had a lot of emotional trauma and I also have a horrible back and neck Maybe it's something to look at. I don't know that the book's going to tell me how to fix it, right. but uh, I certainly have bouts of bad backs after periods of depression or periods of trauma. So well, that's they,
1: information, right? That's but, good information. Yeah, it's good data, I guess. Yeah. You should read the book. I'm going it to. It is a good
0: book. It's I, on my I kitchen like counter. Yeah.
1: So now I'm recommending it to okay. you. <laughs> you know, like I had an awkward experiment with it. Anyway. Sunday Emergency Pod, Sunday afternoon. We're here. Thank you for coming. Thank you and for having doing me. this. Thank you. It's an auspicious day. It is unusual for us to do a podcast on the weekend. On top of that, it's daylight savings today. It's also Oscar Sunday. Mm. I take it you're not going to the Oscars? I'm not going to the
0: Oscars. I, I, I'm low key watching <laughs> yeah. it with friends on a couch. Yeah, have you been in the past? I've never been to the Oscars. I've been to after parties and stuff like that, but I've never had a film that was invited in any way. I've been mm. to the Globes and the Emmys, but never never. Yeah. The, the big dance. Yeah,
1: but like you would be, like I would imagine you would be invited, right? Like, are you somebody who's like, I'm not going unless I have a film there?
0: I, I've never been invited. Yeah, um, that's surprising. I, I've, never, I've never had a film that was included. So you're really not Invited unless you're either have a film that's there or you're someone's date. And- <laughs> I got it right. Well, we're here instead. Yeah, the consolation is, is prize, right? But we're here
1: because you do have this wonderful new movie coming out. a Good person, thank you for letting me take a peek at it the other day, and uh, I'm excited for you, man. This is uh, this feels like a return to. Something that is so authentically you, mm-hmm. like the grown up garden state, Zach Braff, like exploring complicated emotions in a way that is a story version of how you're kind of processing, you know, things that you went through in your own life.
0: Yeah. That's very true. I think I went back to what if I was completely authentic with my own pain. Mm -hmm. And that's something that Garden State very much was. And I had no idea that it would have the response it had, but I was 25 years old when I wrote it. And I was in a very depressed state, even though a lot of wonderful things were going on in my life, I just was quite lost. And that's kind of what bubbled up and what came out of me. And now um, during the pandemic, circumstances were such that this is what came out of me. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think, you're right, in both instances, I really, I stopped with all the bullshit and stopped with trying to be anything else other than for better or for worse, let me write something that is very authentically myself.
1: Mm-hmm. The direct impetus was a series of losses that you experienced most mm. specifically, like you had your best friend who was like living in your guest house, right? Yeah. During COVID.
0: Well, the first impetus for writing about tragedy and trauma was I lost my, my sister had an aneurysm in 2016 and she actually survived, although in in not a fully conscious state in some tiny percentage of herself was alive for two more years. And my mom and brother in particular were by her bedside almost every day because they lived up North and I would go visit her. And she was not only a fraction of herself was there. Then she eventually uh, passed. And um, soon after my father who was 84, but, I can't help but think that it kind of expedited his demise. He died of cancer. After I went into the COVID still grieving all of these things. And then my best friend was living in my guest house. He and his wife and their newborn baby were searching LA for a home. They found a home. They went back to New York to collect their things. And literally like the first day of lockdown they came back from New York and he had contracted COVID. And this was at the very beginning. Right, early, early. Nobody knew what the hell, you know, is was the mayhem of the beginning of, I think, March of 2020. Right. He's 41 years old, very healthy, a Broadway star, um, trying to get his life going as a TV and film actor. And he was very sick and they put him on a ventilator and he never came off of it. So not only was I on the front lines of, losing someone who was close to me to COVID, but his wife and baby were living in the guest house, mm. you know, trying to digest this horrible thing. And it was so traumatic because we we didn't know if she had COVID or we didn't know, you know, it was so- I mean, that was back when
1: we're all like sort of spraying our groceries in the front lawn exactly. and all that kind of craziness exactly. <laughs> before. So she <laughs> yeah, be there was so, a lot
0: of fear. She'd be sobbing yeah. in the in the pile on the ground and we were like, can we hug her? Is it safe to hug her? She might have been exposed to it. So it was really, really horrific. And it was in that headspace during the lockdown that I sat down to write this film about grief and about loss, but also about how one stands back up mm-hmm. after such things. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, for me, like I'm not like a film critic or somebody who has tons of filmmakers, you know, on the podcast, so I don't know where the line is. Like, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody, so maybe Mm. we root it just in the themes. Well, there's certain
0: things that are in the trailer that we can we can talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, what what I found interesting about it is, yes, you explore these themes of grief and loss and loneliness and despair and this kind of very messy road to finding your way forward to recovery. But you do it through modalities that are very different from your lived experience, right? So there's a choice that you made, like you could have had a more direct kind of narrative that related more specifically to the things that you experienced, Mm -hmm. but you made this decision to do it through you know somebody who's involved in a car accident and there are people that die and there's you know drugs involved and et cetera, which is not related to your direct experience, although the emotional experience of that character's journey I assume you know kind of matches up
0: with your own I think so, yeah, I think it was the way I was processing all of these things, but I didn't wanna write specifically the story of my life. I didn't wanna write about COVID. I didn't wanna write about my sister's aneurysm. Right, But all of that was, you know, it's like as a writer, I'm sure you know, and and other writers can relate. You have all of this gurgling inside of you. And when you sit down and stare at the blank cursor to see what's gonna come out, or a songwriter I imagine would be the same. This is what came out. This story is, it was sort of my, interpretation of all these feelings I had, including recovery and things I'm wrestling with my own relationship to alcohol. And um, the, all, all of that stuff became um, a part of it, but it's by no means directly mm-hmm. my story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting like that, you
1: know, as somebody who's been in recovery for a long time, like my kind of radar for, false notes in movies and television that kind of grapple with addiction stories is pretty finely tuned, right? And even we were talking and you're like, it'll be interesting to get my feedback on that because usually people who tell a story in that subculture are people that have experience Mm. participating in that, right? Which is not you which you know led me to think well maybe you know he's going to get it wrong cuz so often it is like you know off note but in watching the film and this is the honest truth like i was surprised that you were able to create such fidelity because that is typically you know something that only somebody who has direct experience with that world would be able to accomplish and i know you had you know experts or consultants or whatever helping you with that but that's a very hard thing to do. And I think it's, for me, the kind of cinema verite of it all, or the kind of honesty comes through in the messiness of it. Like, usually the story arc is somebody has a hard time, they're going through something, they hit bottom, they end up in the rooms of recovery, and then the movie ends or like, that's the end of the story. Whereas in this narrative, it's very up and down, right? Mm. That's not the end of the story. And I think that's much more true to reality, like how difficult and nonlinear the whole thing is. Well,
0: thank you. I have to say that means so much to me coming from you. And I was very nervous to show you. I did of course have consultants. I did not want to do anything that someone in the community would go, that's not real. I asked a lot of questions. I have friends in AA. I had someone who's uh, sort of a recovery expert who was on set anytime we dealt with that stuff. But when I was showing you the film, I was like, so nervous that not just, of course, uh, you know, it isn't hard to get the details of what an AA meeting is like, or perhaps, but I really just wanted to honor that community. And in this Mm -hmm. film, it saves the character played by Florence Pugh's life and the character played by Morgan Freeman's life. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to honor the community. So when you had that reaction, I was relieved and happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's not
1: an easy thing to accomplish. Of course, you you have this incredible, ace in the hand with Florence because she's just a genius. I mean, her, what she is able to do is so, Beyond like the abilities of mere mortals. Like it it really is a gift. She's not of this world. Like it's incredible. She's not of this world. I really believe that. How does she
0: do that? And it's completely-
1: With her face or just with the
0: most subtle thing, the honesty and the pathos is unbelievable with her. I'll make it one more step miraculous for you. She has never attended a single class in her entire life. She's never spoken to a acting coach. It is 1000% God-given natural talent. And I'm I'm not biased in saying she's one of the finest actors in the world. Everyone's lining up from Chris Nolan right. to Denis Villeneuve to mm-hmm. Ari Aster to you name it. They're all in a line to try and work with her. And I wrote this for you know we we were. It's no secret, obviously we were partners and she was with me through this pandemic. We were in lockdown together. Yeah. She was, she's an amazing chef and she was making Amanda pizzas in, in our little mini pizza oven and bringing them down to her. We were on the front lines of this experience together. We went through lockdown and, and the death of our friend together. And so I wrote this with her in mind um, because I wanted to write something for her because she's brilliant. Yeah, well, she knocks it out of the park, not
1: surprisingly. And I, I really do think that she is the greatest of her generation. Yeah. You know, she is the heir apparent to Meryl Streep Absolutely. in so many ways. Like nobody can do what she can
0: do. And it's when so you watch her, you're like, how is she doing this? And it's so exciting for the, it's so <laughs> exciting. Know? I gotta say it's so exciting for yeah. the acting community because yeah. we, there's plenty of people that are f- very fine actors. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a decent actor. I can, I think I do a good job. But we actors, whether it's me or or Meryl Streep are taking this woman aside and being like, holy shit, you are fucking
1: incredible. So what is that? Like, what is her process?
0: It's God given, man. There's just nothing. She just channels it. And she, I mean, it I'm happens. not saying she doesn't do work. She, Of course, she works on the character. She spoke with... Um, In this film, her character has an opioid addiction and she spoke and and met with a woman who recovered from a bad opioid addiction and and talked about what withdrawal was like, what, you know, she sort of interviewed her and talked Mm -hmm. about, please tell me anything and everything. She watched videos. She does her research, don't get me wrong. But I don't know what to say other than it's just a natural ability that's out of this world. And you as the director, Like, what is your interface with her in terms of
1: like how you're, you know, directing her, how you're nudging her to get the performance out of her
0: that you want or need, or do you just get out of the way? I think with people like her and Morgan, you just don't get in the way. The way I think of it is, you know, we shoot everything out of order, as Mm -hmm. you know. And so an actor, a good actor, a great actor is so focused in the moment in the scene, just like you and I are talking here right now. We are. Our job is to ignore that there's cameras, ignore that there's lights, look at each other and be present. And the best instruction you can ever give a young actor is to genuinely listen. Because if I'm genuinely listening to you, Rich, I am so in the moment and present. My brain is listening to you. It's like a meditation. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking of the moving camera. I'm not thinking of the guy whispering in his walkie talkie. I'm with you. And so there in that moment, my job as the director is to look at the macro of the whole film. I need to go, I wonder if Morgan is a little bit angry in the sequence of their evolution of their relationship. And it's always a question with a genius like that. You're like, do you think we should try one where you're not as angry here because we're gonna go A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And what do you think? And normally someone like them will be like, that's smart, let's try one like that. Mm Other times they'll be like, no, no, I'm, I'm really feeling this because of these reasons. And you go, great, great, keep going. So I'm mostly staying out of the way, but I'm shaping it because like the conductor of an orchestra, I have to see the whole piece. You're not going, think of it like Florence Pugh is like the best first violinist in the world. And I'm the conductor. I can't play violin like that. But I do know that at certain moments, she needs to be a little quieter so I can hear the oboe. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's what my job is right. as a filmmaker, working with actors of that. Uh, level,
1: yeah, having that global awareness global of awareness. where this puzzle piece fits in the broader picture of the movie, and yeah. making sure that it's simpatico in the flow,
0: and keeping the tone, and keeping the tone cohesive—that's yeah. really important because a movie like this, which I should say off the bat, because we've only talked about the heavy stuff, also has a lot of humor in it. Uh-huh. So the directors also really in control of the tone. What movie are we all making? We have to make mm-hmm. sure we're making the same movie. So there's other moments where you can go that's a bit too broad a humorous moment for this movie. Or mm-hmm. sometimes you try them and then go, in the edit, I gotta see, that might that might not fit in this film when, when I start to really strip away all the pieces of clay and find out what this movie is. That might be too broad. This might be too maudlin. You know, so you're you're kind of, you're the one in charge of the tone of the thing.
1: Yeah. I feel like there is a bit of a tone arc in this movie mm. because it kind of opens with, Morgan Freeman's voiceover and that he's, you know, the voice of America. you know, it's like that soothing voice and there's train sets and you're, you're thinking, oh, there's something, you know, perhaps very homey or, or potentially, you know, on the negative side, maybe even too sappy. Mm. And then the movie kind of develops into this darker terrain that it's exploring. But then Florence Pugh's mom is Molly Shannon, who can go super broad, right? Like that could get too nutty. Like if you're not making sure that that's, Properly calibrated. Of for the that's, that's that the perfect to tell. articulation yeah. of what
0: my job is as a filmmaker: is to make sure we're all making the same movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that, somebody else is in another movie. Yeah, well, yeah, that happens it, it all the time. Up the whole thing. Yeah, you'll see that the audience won't even know how to articulate it necessarily like that, but they'll go, "Why are these scenes off?" Mm-hmm. It's because that character's in a different film. I, there's things I've loved. But every time there's a scene with X character, I go, oh, this person's in a different piece. Right. It alienates me every single time. And
1: that's the job of the director to make sure to avoid that. Or to make so. sure everyone's on the same page. I think so. And
0: by the way, people might love it. It might just be my own personal uh, squirm mm-hmm. that I go, oh my goodness, this would be so much better if that character was in the same tone as the rest of this.
1: Yeah. There's something about this movie also that feels a little bit kind of out of time given the current kind of state of Hollywood. Like, this is a very traditional indie movie in the Sundance tradition. Mm. You made it with Killer Films, right? Like, the, you know, premier production company for this type of movie. Mm. And in the era in which you came up in the Garden State times, it was all about Sundance. Like, that was the zeitgeist of the culture and like launching an independent film into mainstream awareness. And, you know, that was something that, you know, the culture kind of invested in, right? There's a lot of energy around that. Now, Hollywood is a very different place. Completely different. And it it changes every (laughs) year. It's it's different from last year. It's like, I mean, my wife and Jaya, we went to go to the movies the other day and we're like, what can we see? And we're like, these are the options, like yeah. eighty for Brady. Like, what are we gonna, you know? Like, well, I need want to go to the movies. I, I movie- want to be excited <laughs> to go to the movies. There was nothing exciting. Well, right? I made a
0: movie for you. Rich. <laughs> yes, I know. And th-
1: I'm getting to my point, which yeah. is that it has become rarer and rarer that there is, you know, mature adult fare that deals with themes that you know appeal to someone like myself that find their way into the movie theaters. It's either Marvel, DC, giant event picks, or the occasional, you know, outlier, like everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, Um,
0: but that's still still visual spectacle. So I would say it falls into visual spectacle and horror.
1: Horror's big still. Yeah, horror's predictable big still. to yeah. Because but a movie st- like yours, these movies don't end up in the movie theater. Like it's amazing that you I figured know. out a
0: way to get this movie <laughs> in the movie theater. That's why I'm praying that people go. I mean, how did that happen? That's a great question. How did it happen? It happened because MGM so believed in the film that they said they were gonna give it a theatrical release. Now, mind you, this film was we shot in the fall of 2021. It was ready to come out end of 2022, mm-hmm. but Florence had two other high profile films and it was a bit crowded of a marketplace. So MGM held it until this spring, March 24th. So in the meantime, I was, the company was purchased by Amazon. Right. And so in my head, I'm terrified. I'm They're going, gonna just put it right. Did I it's lose gonna go my, right to prime. You know, if I say to other filmmakers, I have a theatrical release, they're like, what? To to your point, it's very rare that these films even get a theatrical release anymore. So I was nervous that Amazon would just put it on streaming, but they believe in it too. So Mm -hmm. um, I think the response has been so positive that um, they're gonna give it a a run. It'll be on 500 screens on the first weekend, which for an indie is substantial. Mm -hmm. And then
1: it's all about how it performs opening weekend. And that will dictate whether it it leads to fight another weekend.
0: Every filmmaker's (laughs) uh, future. uh, I know. You work your butt off for so many years and blood, sweat, and tears, and it all really comes down to if people show up the first weekend.
1: Sure, and those numbers come in like Friday night, right? Oh, like there's an algorithm that predicts based upon the numbers on
0: Friday night, how exactly. it's gonna do. Right? And sometimes they'll surpass those numbers, like Creed really surpassed the algorithm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, based on all the decades and decades of data they have, although that should mostly be thrown out the window post COVID because all bets are off now, post COVID no one knows what's happening. But traditionally there's an algorithm that says, based on what's happening, you know, noon on Friday, we can predict what the weekend will be but Sometimes they're off you know they' yeah. they were way off on Creed. Creed did like twenty million dollars more than they thought,
1: and so how do you balance your relationship to you know the creative act of making something and shipping it to use Seth Godin's term, like you're putting this thing out mm. out into the world, which you should be very proud of, like it's beautifully rendered and it's you know ex- exquisitely performed, and all of that like that exists you know, as this kind of music box thing. And then there's the commerce piece and the yeah. public response to it and all the kind of, you know, running around promoting it kind of stuff that you have to do. The external, you know, noise around it. Like, how do you maintain your sanity in the wake of I don't of know, I, I don't know,
0: I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, you're right though. And I've heard you speak about this with other people and I really appreciated your perspective on it. Maybe your episode with Seth, uh, one of your episodes with Seth Godin that I maybe I'm thinking of, but that difference between being so proud of something, and yes, this is like your book, this is 100% authentically me. Now it's up to the universe to decide Mm -hmm. its fate, whether people go to the theaters, whether people respond to it or not, but how do you still hold on to good or bad that I'm proud of this thing that I put all of my myself into? Uh, That is very tricky and Mm -hmm. and hard. I don't really know the answer. Do you get caught up in looking at the reviews and
1: peeking at stuff that maybe you feel like, man, maybe I shouldn't look at that or? Well, I
0: got off Twitter thanks to you, uh, which was, I mean, I still will. (laughs) No, it was your conversation with Seth, actually. You have no idea how much you really, and I mean this in all sincerity, how much, what a positive impact this podcast has had on me. And I really wanna Mm. thank you. And, And I'll probably bring it up a few times as we chat, but one was Seth Godin saying, I have no interest in reading people day trading their emotions and that really, really landed hard with me because I had a very unhealthy relationship with constantly reading Twitter. And I don't mean just stuff that was about me. I just mean the, the negativity that is the town of Twitter. Yeah. And I was obsessed with being in that town and I'm someone who battles depression and anxiety and like, I shouldn't be in that town. I'm too sensitive for that town. Mm. Like if it was a place, I wouldn't go there. I'll of course say like, hey, here's my trailer, but I don't obsessively read uh, Twitter anymore. Yeah. In terms of reviews, I don't go down the rabbit hole and read all reviews. As a producer on the movie and as a partner to MGM and these companies, I'll of course know the gist. I'll know the tone, the tenor of the response, but I won't obsessively go down and, and read everything. I don't, I don't know, did you do that with your book? I, I don't, I don't yeah,
1: know. Yeah, but that was a while ago. Like now I have a very different, relationship with all of that. At the beginning, I was very caught up in all of that. And now, I really work hard to create a buffer between myself and all of that noise. And I don't get caught up in the conversations and I unfollowed everybody on Twitter. So, I still have a Twitter account and like yourself, like I'll post stuff that's interesting or my own stuff, but I don't go and, you know, scroll through like what people say about me or, what everybody's saying about like the culture war subject of the moment or yeah. any of that's
0: the stuff that really people gets me day trading their emotions. Yeah. Of course, reading something negative about myself on Twitter was not good for my extraordinarily mm. sensitive brain, but I'm not even really speaking about that. I'm just talking about the tenor of the conversation. Yeah. I just think was really, really, really bad for my psyche. And another thing I got from you, I really should be your publicist, <laughs> was I forgot the name <laughs> of the author, but the chaos machine. Max Fisher. That completely yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I incredible hope your book. I hope your listeners and viewers get that book because I want to resell that book to you because I got it off of your podcast and that completely changed my relationship with mm-hmm. social media. Yeah, it's an incredible. I really book. needed to hear those words and um, I'm, I'm a little bit on uh, Instagram because I do enjoy pictures of things, but I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on YouTube obsessively. That book was transformational for me.
1: Yeah, he's doing God's work. He really book. is, and, yeah. I,
0: and I wish more people knew about it. I found it on your podcast, but I was like, I, I'm just gonna be this guy's publicist and talk about it everywhere yeah. I go. <laughs> I, I, I'm, gonna give, I'm gonna give everyone the book for the holidays. <laughs> I'm sure Max will even be, be happy to hear that. I don't even have kids, yeah. but as a parent, yeah, I feel like it's every terrifying. parent should read that book because it is insane what these corporations are doing to our minds, let alone kids' minds. Mm-hmm. Agreed, hundred percent. And
1: as a sensitive, creative person, part of your job is to protect that sensitivity. Like you have to be kind of in touch with your, you know, emotional self. And be able to kind of channel like what it is that you're feeling and experiencing. And all of that noise is either like the best case is it's a distraction. The worst case is it starts to, you know, tamper down that voice or of you course. feel like you can't express yourself authentically and honestly. Or- and that's antithetical to like, everything that you need to be about to
0: do what it is that you do. Exactly, or even worse, Rich, you start trying to chase what you think people want you to be. You start trying Mm -hmm. to chase creating something that is not in any way authentically you, but is something you think will be better received by a studio, by Mm -hmm. an audience, by a movie theater chain, by a critic, that's not gonna be good. That's like a band trying to write a hit album for the charts. Odds are, I mean, obviously, there's a certain pop stars that have it dialed. Uh, they're all written in Stockholm, and they <laughs> talk about an algorithm uh, for creating a, a hit. But um, if you're trying to do something uh, that is personal, like your book or like my films, trying to to mold them into something that that is not you, that is not honest, that is not authentic is gonna be a piece of shit because it's it's just a mess of something that, it's like something AI created that doesn't make any sense. Yeah,
1: because you're so afraid of the cackle of the Twitter community that you're watering down your voice to make it non-offensive or to make sure that you're adhering to a certain set of talking points that, you know, will be approved of by, you know, the community, you know, the online community. But that's impossible. That's it not is, something it's that's, terrible, that's,
0: it's like the worst. But it's also, it's not, it's not something you could ever succeed in doing is pleasing everybody. Right. I think that's another golden thing I got from you was that I read the tribes and uh, talking about like, find your people and speak to them. Mm-hmm. Find people that feel like I do. And obviously uh, you and I think alike because I love your podcast and you liked my movie. So find people of like minds who appreciate what you have to say and make something for them. Yeah. Don't try and I'm, I'm not trying to make a film for everyone. You couldn't, I couldn't, um, I don't, wouldn't know how. Yeah. I mean, we all have a band we absolutely love that some people say they hate. Sure, right. Uh, it's like that. I yeah. mean, I, I'm so glad that Coldplay exists. Coldplay is one of my favorite bands. People <laughs> abhor Coldplay. I, I go to the concerts in the stadiums and
1: sob. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh my friend Toby Morse who's been on the podcast before is like this hardcore like punk rocker, straight edge, you know, fully covered in tats and comes from that kind of like DIY, you know, community of you know, it's not about the money or whatever, but he's like a super emo bleeding heart for like Coldplay. Like Mm. he just loves talking about Coldplay, which is antithetical to like this image of this like super tatted up guy, you know? But it's like, there's something beautiful about that. And it's, it's something that we talked about earlier, which is that, and this goes to kind of the discourse on social media, which is that prioritizes or favors like cynicism and irony and negativity and judgment and scoring points for taking people down a peg. Mm. When in truth, like earnestness and enthusiasm and like being a fan of something and not worrying about whether it's cool, and just being confident in your own voice and expressing what you love. You know, the algorithm doesn't favor that. And that might not be approved of or considered cool in like our current environment. But honestly, like, that's the stock and trade of, you know, the kind of person that I wanna be around yeah. and the
0: artists that I respect. Well, that's why I'm drawn to your show. Because for me, what you're putting out there onto the internet is positivity and curiosity and the desire to learn and the desire to grow and the desire to be a better person. It's the antithesis of what I think is the tenor of so much of the internet, which is who can outsnark whom. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm trying to turn that some of that off in my life, and that chaos machine book was like the perfect articulation of why. Um, and find um, things that are that will help me be a, a, a kinder, better, more interested person. Yeah.
1: So I take it on some level that the process of like writing this movie provided some kind of therapeutic outlet for the confusing, you know, emotions that you were experiencing, the grief of, you know, your friend and your sister and your dad and all of that and covid and and all of that. But, you know, what is the connection between like your own mental health journey and the kind of creative outlet of like writing and directing stories that help you kind of make sense of these things?
0: Um I battled depression and anxiety my whole life. And I had OCD pretty bad as a child. And um, I think I found writing and performing as a way of dealing with that, particularly humor. Um, Mm. Making people laugh was a high for me. I didn't play sports at all. I had no connection to sports. I didn't know how to make friends, so I became because I was a funny kid, I became a class clown, and that's how I made friends. Mm-hmm. And then, when I was around 13 years old, my uh, you know I lived on the East Coast in Jersey, and well, sleepaway camp was very popular. A lot of the kids would go to a traditional sleepaway camp that was about sports, and I, I didn't shine, and I and I felt alienated, and I was like, "What's wrong with me?" I loved performing, and my fa- my parents found this theater camp for me that was called Stage Door Manor, and I went there, and it was like epiphanous. It was utopia. It was a uh, it was a place where everyone was a performer and everyone was like me. And I didn't know that there were other kids, that many kids out there like me. Mm -hmm. So just from an early age, the way I would manage anxiety and depression was creating art, whether it was as a performer or as a writer. Um, I have a very early memory of, of being in fifth grade and, and the teacher said, "Who's gonna?" we had to write an essay and who's gonna get up in front of the class and, and read their essay. And I did, and I had written other kids in the class into the essay and made a very funny essay, but the, the protagonists were kids in the class. And I got up there and they were belly laughing as I read it. And I remember clocking the teacher in the back of the classroom, holding her stomach and laughing. Uh-huh. And I thought, this is probably the highest high I've had in my life so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah like lights a, on. Is there any chance this is a career? When's career yeah. day? So that's a long-winded way of saying, that's why I became a writer and a filmmaker, was a way of trying to find shared um, community with these feelings that I have. Mm-hmm. And to answer your other question about uh, is is it cathartic? It's most cathartic when I finally watch it with an audience and I see their reaction. When they laugh at the right moment, when they swipe a tear at the right moment, when they're pin drop silent at the right moment. That's when I feel like oh, I'm not alone in these emotions. Yeah, it's
1: an antidote to loneliness. Yeah, like you're, this, you're t- these emotions that I'm
0: feeling are are collective. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the best yeah, that's, beautiful. that's that's better said than I could have said it. It's an antidote to loneliness.
1: Yeah. Um so you went to you went to like a public high school in New yeah, Jersey, yeah. but then you had this summer camp. Your dad was like a gregarious, charismatic guy, yeah, right? He was a trial did theater, and that was he was your a trial attorney. He,
0: actually the original thing was that he was a trial attorney who loved theater. So he would we 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 were forty five minutes from the city in, in Jersey, from uh-huh. Manhattan. So we would go see. Would, and he was a lawyer, so he could afford. Uh, I was very lucky he could afford to bring us to the theater and i loved musicals as a kid and he loved them and then he got into community theater you know he would be the star of the local play because he was so charming and, and and a very good actor i mean he could have been an actor and that's kind of was you know another reason i got my that's how i ended up at theater camp was because he was wedding my palate with with the local theater and with broadway and um you know that's how it all began, and
1: that was kind of a the theater camp that you went to was like a legit yeah it's the like real primo theater camp right yeah who you came know, out of, like some other names came out well, of it right well Natalie Portman
0: and Robert Downey Jr. and uh just a few <laughs> just a, just you know, a there, couple there's lots <laughs> J- uh, Josh <laughs> yeah. Charles uh, uh, uh-huh. Nanny Moore there, there are right. some big big names and by the way a ton that are working actors who aren't famous yeah a ton of theater yeah. and and people you see all the time but you might not know their name I mean. You know, if you were a young kid and you wanted to pursue this, this is where you went. Uh-huh. This wasn't, this isn't just, as my father said, uh, kind of with a little bit of a, a laugh, he said, I guess you don't need to bring a mitt." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right?
1: But these are your people. Like you realize early on immediately, like, oh, this is my lane. This is my community. Absolutely. I relate to these people. Um, I can be, you know, I can like, Sort of stand out here and like be myself, and I don't have to wear the mask that I feel like I have to wear when I go to high school. When it was time to leave, Uh I really,
0: I was, I really, I really can't express to you how much it felt like going to a utopia for six weeks and then being pulled out to go back to what I dreaded. Uh Um, So it was traumatic in in a weird way because I, I had found what I thought was heaven on earth. But there's something really
1: amazing, rare and beautiful about discovering at an early age, like what it is that you wanna do. Like that—that that is something that, you know, is not, it's not a normal experience. Like most people, I feel like, you know, the pressure that's on, you know, the typical 18 year old when they head off to college or whatever, they're supposed to, you know, know what they wanna do with their life. Like most people don't like, that rare occasion where you're like, oh, this is the thing that I'm gonna be doing. You know, it's like, there's something amazing about that. I feel very lucky about that. I I know
0: that people struggle for, you know, for years to find out what their calling is. I I do feel very lucky that I knew it at such a young age. Yeah,
1: I think I'm starting to figure it out.
0: (laughs) I think you've got a couple (laughs) of things you're really good at, man.
1: It was at least, I don't know, mid forties before I figured it out, but anyway. and I think people you know they know you from Scrubs, they know you from Garden State they 'll know you even more from this movie and 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 you've done you know lots of things over the years, but you kind of like you know hit it hard early on yeah. like your early years like I feel like that's kind of an underreported aspect of your career, like
0: yeah, I had beginners getting luck. cast
1: in like a Woody Allen movie when yeah. you were like eighteen and then also. The Public, like yeah. you know, you being you doing Shakespeare at the public when yeah. you were how old were you then? So,
0: my very first part I got 14 was a pilot for CBS that didn't get picked up. Uh-huh. Um, and then I kind of uh, that was
1: the Bruce Paltrow, yeah, Bruce Paltrow. Paltrow created
0: um, St. Elsewhere. <laughs> um, and it was Gwyneth's father, and he, it was her first part too. Um, she was a stunning. 17-year-old and I was sort of a nerdy 14-year-old and mm-hmm. she played the beautiful cheerleader and I played the nerdy freshman. It was about a public school. Same year nine hundred two, 90210 came out. It was Bruce Paltrow's sort of gritty answer to 90210. Right. This is gonna be the dark side right. of By the way, the show and couldn't even get picked up today. Right. And this was this was when I was 14 years old. It was really gritty. It was uh-huh. bold as hell. Maybe on streaming, I don't know. But um, it didn't go anywhere. Um, it was too R-rated for, for CBS, certainly. And then my, you know, I auditioned, I auditioned for lots of things. And then it wasn't until I was 18, I had gotten to Northwestern to go to film school. And right before I was about to go, I got cast in Manhattan Murder Mystery, Woody Allen's film with Diane Keaton. My first scene in a movie is, I'm only in one scene in the movie, but my scene partners are Woody Allen, Diane Keaton and Angelica Houston. It's insane. And I'm 18 years old and I'm and, playing- And
1: you were kind of raised on Woody Allen. Yeah,
0: I mean, and now now it's, it's, uh, it's, it's right. frowned can, upon yeah. to talk about Woody Allen, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah. I do have to say yeah. the, the truth, which is um, without glorifying Woody Allen, the truth is that I was raised on Woody Allen. He was my father's favorite, um, you know, he was speaking to To my parents, they loved it. He was their target demo, and so all of those films were very influential in my in my life. And then there I was playing—you know—Annie Hall was their favorite movie, and there I was playing Diane Keaton and Woody Allen's son. It was Mm -hmm. it was really surreal moment. And then I was sort of thought like, well, do I—you know—this is a big thing. Do I stay with this and and not go off to Northwestern and study film and? but then I I, ch- I chose that. I said I want to go. I want to really learn how to make movies, I, and so that's what I did.
1: That took a lot of courage, I think. I think most people probably would have thought, "Hey, I'm on my way. Like, yeah. why should I get off this train? I might not be able to get back on." In
0: New York at the time, and we're talking about '93, being an 18 year old who had just landed the part of Winnie Allen and Diane Keaton's son, uh, that was a huge. Yeah. Moment, right? And, and I did not. Because being not cast
1: that. in a Woody Allen movie at that time,
0: you're sort of being anointed. Yes, you you're anointed. And then I, I didn't I didn't I didn't I didn't ride that wave at all. Mm-hmm. I just disappeared. Right. Um, and then I came back um, after Northwestern, and I had a wonderful Shakespeare teacher. Um, I, I was in film school, but I talked my way into an acting class. They Northwestern at the time separated the the two schools but I talked my way into an acting class and I had a wonderful uh, acting teacher. And one of the things he really introduced me to and explained to me and gave me the distinctions for was Shakespeare. And I understood it for the first time in my life through this incredible professor named David Downs. And the very first thing I got out of Northwestern was uh, in a production of Macbeth starring Alec Baldwin, Angela Bassett, Lieb Schreiber, (laughs) Michael C. Hall, (laughs) um, some others, um, uh, Jason Butler-Harner and other incredible New York theater actors directed by George C. Wolfe, who's one of the preeminent uh, theater directors in New York and in in a 300 seat house uh, at the public theater. So that was my first job out of college. It's bananas. And it was crazy. And I had a front row seat to watch these incredible actors, particularly Liev Schreiber, who I I will say, and I don't, you know, for those who know New York theater, he's probably the- the dude. He's the finest, New. I I believe he's probably the finest American Shakespearean actor Mm -hmm. that there is. Mm -hmm. So I got right out of school, and and I don't mean to diminish anybody else, but Liev is particularly gifted. I got to have a front row seat watching Liev Schreiber do Shakespeare and uh, that was like life-changing and that was like grad school.
1: Right, I would imagine also, Terrifying. Absolutely. Like he's a pretty intimidating yeah. presence, that guy. He is, and
0: I was playing two parts, uh, Young Seward and Fleance, and Fleance is Banquo Leo's character's mm-hmm. son. So I was in awe of him, but also, uh, but definitely certainly intimidated by him because he's, he's a very strong presence. Yeah,
1: so you go to Northwestern to study filmmaking, you come out and you're doing stage acting and you have all these acting opportunities that are not necessarily filmmaking opportunities, but mm-hmm. the world is kind of like opening up to you pretty quickly and and not for nothing, like Northwestern, like incredible program. I mean, who, so you must've been like that era was like, was Seth Myers there yeah. when you Seth were there? Seth Meyers yeah, was, yeah, yeah.
0: was, um, was there. Uh-huh.
1: Um, Richie Keene, do you know Richie yeah, Keene? Yeah, how do
0: you know Richie I Keene? Keene. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Richie Keene. Yeah, I love Richie Keene. One of my great yes. buddies.
1: I've. I, we could talk about that later, but yeah, um, I love Richard. Lots
0: of people, Katherine um, Hahn, who's an incredible actress um, and really gaining traction. There were so many really, really talented people. And again, people that are working and are brilliant, but not necessarily household names.
1: Yeah, so at some point, you find your way to Los
0: Angeles though, like how does that yeah. happen? So it's funny, I was, I was in New York, I was. this is the height of the music video era, right? So, I mean, this is 1998, uh-huh. the Fugees made a video for like $7 million, it was like, it was like the day. This right. is the era. You know, this is like Spice Girls, Mariah Carey. This was like the apex of the music video time. People were spending a fortune. I was paing on those because I didn't want to take features as a pa because that would lock me up and not let me be free to audition. Mm-hmm. So a pa uh, on a commercial was kind of the perfect, or a music video was the perfect job for me because I could do three, four days, make a little bit of money, and then be free to go on auditions. Right. So that was kind of my system. Then I finally got an indie called You Can Count On Me. That went to Sundance. That was like a big break. And then I got another one called The Broken Hearts Club, which was Greg Berlani's very first uh, film. Mm -hmm. And then that went to Sundance. I went to Sundance two years in a row. So I was kind of starting to get momentum. With Timothy Oliphant. Yeah, yeah. Timothy Oliphant, uh, Billy Porter, uh, Dean Cain, um, uh, all sorts of wonderful actors. And then I, I was waiting, to, but I came out here. I had no money. I followed a girl out. I, I used the, I, I was dating a, a young woman, and I, I sort of used that as a, um, as the, as the impetus. But the truth was, I knew this was back in the day where if you were auditioning in New York, they were FedExing a VHS tape right. to LA. That's how you yeah, we were yeah. trying to compete. Yeah. Now, if you're the director of a movie, Rich, and I come in here to audition, we're going to shoot the shit a little bit. We're going to get to know each other. We're going to have a little bit of a bond, and then I'm going to launch into my audition, and then you're going to be able to say, "I like that. Can you try it?" bring it down a little bit and give me some notes. And then we're gonna go again. Now that's how the actors in LA were auditioning. Then you'd go home and you'd have a stack of 40 VHS tapes that had been sent from all over the country. You're gonna barely watch them. You're gonna fast forward them. So I knew that if I was gonna seriously compete, I had to come out to LA. So I did. Um, My parents loaned me $5,000 to buy a car. I bought a Nissan uh, 240 SX manual. Um, and uh, <laughs> I got a job at a French Vietnamese restaurant, which was um, called Le Colonial. It's it's no longer there, but it was uh, it was in Beverly Hills at the corner of- uh, I know it well. Beverly and Robertson. Yes. Uh, that place had a moment. Oh, did it? I that was, was there. the spot. I was there. So you were a waiter there.
1: I was a waiter there. It's now a Leica uh-huh. store, which is bizarre yeah, it's because- It's like Leica I, store, but- 2000
0: that's that's to like
1: 2002 two,
0: yeah. like that around two it eventually that, closed down because it was meant to be a restaurant but it became such a hot spot it was it was an it was basically a nightclub the that the neighborhood said yeah. this is not what we give a permit yeah. for
1: <laughs> and it was also I don't know if you know this part well you work there but it was kind of it became like a like a sober hangout at night um it was a, there was one night was it like Monday night was the night. And like we would all go and hang out at La Colonia. Yeah, I knew that. Like at we 2000, a, I threw yeah. a party there. We served a lot of once coffee that yeah. Year. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Anyway, so I, a, I remember so that. Gonna, like it blow. was
1: cool. Like that was the scene. There was a I'm scene blowing your mind there. right now. You ready? Yeah.
0: So I had to wear a tunic and um the opening sequence of Garden State where my character is working at a French Vietnamese restaurant is all inspired by my experience working at Le Yeah, I
1: think I knew that uh, yeah 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 it's well, true I yeah no, no now that I've, yeah no it's yeah that's right that's right yeah that's wild man that's wild
0: so so um things had stalled a bit and I and I was a waiter and I was I was happy to be making um money as a waiter, but I was not having any traction. All the traction I had had in New York was gone. And I was just, I couldn't get arrested here. And um, I started to get really insecure about it. Maybe I came out here too fast. Maybe I I should go back to New York where I had momentum. I was doubting everything. Mm. And my agent said, you're panicking, don't panic. Go through one more pilot season. This is back in the day when auditioning for pilots was actually, the beginning of the year, it was like January to April was pilot season, and I did. And my first audition um, of that pilot season was for Scrubs. It's amazing. Little did you know that that would go on for
1: how many years? Nine years. It went you for did, nine did that years. show, yeah, nine. Yeah, years. I mean, huge show. And you know, in thinking about that, like in thinking about your career as like an independent writer director, and also as like a network television actor. You forge your career along two kind of traditional paths. Like one, you become an actor in like a big network sitcom, and it's all about syndication. Like after a certain number of episodes or whatever, like it just becomes like a you know financial you know windfall, right? Mm. That allows you to the opportunity to like do whatever you want. That's kind of like no longer. I guess maybe does syndication even still exist? Not really. No, not in the traditional sense. No. And then the idea of like being an independent filmmaker and going to Sundance and like making a splash and becoming the new hot thing, I guess, like, I mean, Sundance is still there. It's not what it used to be. Sundance Everything's kind of shifted. Sundance like, is
0: not what it was in what we're talking no, about. No, of course not. Like, no. so
1: when you're there, 94, like when, you know, these well, my, my, early as an, years. As and an then actor, when,
0: 99 and 2000, but then in its prime for Garden State in 2004, I believe. And that was still the era of like Sunday. That was like a, there was like a bidding war. Yeah, and it was, um, I'm I'm, I'm sorry to mention another controversial name, but at the time your fantasy, what you read about in all the books was that your cell phone would ring and it would be Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. um, And he wanted your movie. It was all about Miramax. And and, and, it was, you know, I had been reading these books, like, you know, you're a success when your phone rings and it's Harvey Weinstein and they want Mm -hmm. your movie. And that's what happened to me. Uh, they released it uh internationally and and Fox Searchlight released it uh domestically but that was the very first screenplay i'd ever written and um when i got scrubs i thought i was so thrilled obviously but then i m- my second thought was oh this is going to help me get my movie made uh huh that's the instinct of a real filmmaker though right? that's yeah it's funny i look back now i i i sent my dp uh from the movie who's now become a Oscar-nominated uh, cinematographer Larry Schur, who shot The Joker and a zillion other things, but uh-huh. he's a brilliant guy. He shot Garden State, and I found an old picture of us, and I sent it to him. and He goes, "We were so young." And I said, "We didn't know we didn't know," because I had such chutzpah. I didn't know so much that I was that I just had so much drive. I was like, "I'm going to get this made." Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. Were we'll you get
1: 25, made. 26? Yeah, when Garden State happened. Yeah, so you're in this high-profile sitcom. You make, you write your first screenplay, you make this movie, you make it with Natalie Portman. Mm-hmm. It's a huge success. Everyone's talking about it. Like, that's vertigo inducing for, yeah. you know, a young man, right? Yeah. Like, how did you process all of that success?
0: Um, I think it takes time, it takes looking back on it to, to, to see, wow, what a crazy time. It was definitely um, a whirlwind. And, I think I instantly had terror of trying to duplicate it, right? Then then it's like how am I ever going to top this? How am I ever going to top it? And then you're sort of chasing it because I don't it was lightning in a bottle. I don't know how you know it's the classic sophomore mm-hmm. album thing right. or sophomore book or sophomore movie where it's you know people are like he, like it's like an a, a band will release an album and and it's time to write the sophomore album. They spent their whole life writing the first album, right? Um my first screenplay was I didn't spend my whole life writing it, but it was certainly everything I'd been brainstorming on since I'd gone to film school and mm-hmm. and wanted and dreamt of creating. And then it was like, oh, I always admired Damien Chazelle uh, because Whiplash was a huge hit, and then he had he had a bunch of other things locked and loaded. Yeah, and I didn't, uh, so I took work as an actor in films that some were good, some were bad. There was interest in me directing huge things, but I but I was also keep in mind, I was also doing the show for, yeah. I, I was contractually obligated to keep doing the show for a very long time. Uh, this so was, any of these other things could only happen during your- Brief window. Your, yeah. So I would sometimes, once I set up a movie, I once set up a movie that I had adapted from a, Dan- a Danish film I loved. And it was literally uh, Sean Penn was attached to star in it. And it was all about to happen. And and then if we didn't start by a certain date, we couldn't make the movie because I had to go back to Scrubs, and you know mm. it's very very hard to get anything made. And of course, we didn't hit the date, and the whole thing right. fell apart. Right. Right. So um, I had years of sort of um, feeling like I fucked everything up because I I didn't I it was such a it was such a beginner's luck kind of situation where I didn't really know how to uh, recapture it. Mm-hmm. And also I was, it was very hard for me to write because I was, I, 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 maybe you might feel that way if you've written, I think I've heard you say this on the podcast that when you've had such a successful book, you're like, how do I? You get blocked. Yeah, how yeah. do I, 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 don't know, I don't know how to begin to try and top that. I didn't think anyone was gonna see this fucking movie. I thought my parents and like the temple choir would go. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. And it becomes this thing, you become, a victim of your own success
1: and the pressures that, you know, suddenly befall you. I mean, you do move forward. I mean, I feel like the second movie got overshadowed by the whole crowdfunding yeah. fu- kerfuffle that like it. surrounded all of that. Yeah, Which is weird. I feel like if somebody were to pursue that kind of fundraising for their film now, it would be a very different response than I don't what happened so. then.
0: I don't know. I, I definitely did not intend to become the face of that. I was, I've always been interested in like new things. And, um, and uh, you know, Kevin Smith is the one who turned me on to MySpace. He's like, you gotta try this thing, MySpace. It's yeah. so awesome. You can talk to your fans and have a discourse with them. And I'm like, really? So I've always been into like, uh, you know, and I wrote a blog. He's the one who said, you should write a blog. You're a writer, you should, you know, so back in the day, I was like writing a blog. He was the
1: first one to do a podcast too. I mean, that guy's been at the front end of
0: like a lot of stuff. Before MySpace, even I was writing. I had a, on my, at ZachBraff.com, I wrote a blog. I would write a blog. And he's the one who taught me all about like Mm. interacting with your fans and developing your fan base. And it's so cool if you're a writer, you can have like a daily conversation with your fans. I was like, what? So I was kind of always interested in, in the new thing. In that particular thing, it, it, just, so, it just so hit people the wrong way. And um, you're right, I, I do agree that it, it hurt the film badly. And, and my, my hope is that one day, um, you know, people will revisit, Cameron Crowe told me that. And he's like, he really liked that movie. And he was very supportive of that movie. And he said, I think one, there's gonna be a day, I don't know when it is, he said, but I think there's gonna be a day where people revisit that film and see it in a different light.
1: Well, I can't remember
0: where I heard you tell this story, but Larry David, like yeah. he smiled <laughs> smiled upon it, right? It's funny, if, you, if you've made a bunch of things, anyone listening or, or anyone who's an artist and, and knows this, there's certain things you do that are that people like and there's certain things you be, do people don't, but you, you have a certain soft spot in your heart for things that didn't work that you go, it's a nail in my heart a little bit because uh, that film was really personal and, and, and very hard to make. And mm. it was about the fear of losing my father and my brother and I wrote it together, my brother, Adam, and I wrote it together. Every once in a while, someone will come up to me and, be, and of all things I've done, and I've done a lot now, I'm 47 years old. Mm-hmm. Someone will come up to me and say, hey, I just wanna say, and the film we're talking about is called Wish I Was Here. Wish I Was Here" was a really important film for me. And, and, I, and, I, and for me, it's like that they're, they're complimenting my child that's mm-hmm. underappreciated. And so one of those was Larry David. I was in a restaurant and Larry David came up to me and I was, I was just totally still and he said, this movie, uh wish I was here. You wrote that. Like <laughs> like he was shocked. <laughs> he was surprised. <laughs> yeah. No, he was totally shocked. And coming from him, uh-huh. who, who I love, mm-hmm. of all people. I was like, Yeah, he goes, That's a really well written movie. Mm. So on behalf of my brother I mean, come on, right? Like that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. It, so I'm it, hoping I'm hoping one day people see it, you know it's that it's i still have hope for it <laughs> it's that
1: seth godin thing though like you said earlier like what you put out in the world shouldn't be for everybody and you know to the extent that it connects with a certain kind of person like that's why you're doing it isn't that right? what
0: godin said he's like i'm not making coke i'm not making pepsi i'm not making doritos he said something like that like mm-hmm. like i'm trying to i'm trying to make something that is uh it's certainly, most certainly not for everyone. But when you find the people, whether it's you or mm-hmm. Larry David or the people that are, are my fans, um, I'm hopefully making something they can relate to.
1: So you've done a ton of directing and television, to Lasso and now shrinking, mm-hmm. like working with Harrison Ford and Jason mm-hmm. Segel, which is super cool. But it's been a number of years since you wrote and directed your own film, right? Yeah. yeah. So like, why did that take so long? And, and then kind of maybe second to that, like, what is the creative process? Is it just, you know, you finally realize like you have a story to tell and then there's a mad rush and you get it done? Or like, what is that? look like for you?
0: I battled it a lot. I mean, I, I liked your conversation about the war of art and getting your ass in the chair and staring at the uh, the the blinking cursor. You just have to sit there. It's so easy now to procrastinate. And um, I think the pandemic in this case really made me run out of excuses. Mm-hmm. Um, not only was all of this, you know what it feels like when you when you have something to say, it's kind of gurgling up. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when you have to puke for lack of a better analogy you you just, it's it's there and mm-hmm. you know you you know you have to sit at the keyboard if you can just get your butt in the chair to do it and I th- I felt that during the pandemic I felt like I had something to say and I didn't know if it was going to be good um I knew I wanted to write it for Florence because I I wanted I was in awe of of her talent and um and so I just sat down during the pandemic and it, 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 some of it came fast and, and, and easy and some of it didn't, mm-hmm. but that's what it is, it's showing up. It's the war of art story. It's yeah. putting your butt in the chair. I can procrastinate like anybody. I, and I look back and um had years of, of procrastinating. I directed a big studio comedy called Going In Style, which was fun, you know, it was fun to have a budget and it was fun to direct, you know, Michael Caine and, and Morgan Freeman and Alan Arkin, but. And it was awesome. I would, I would, I would, do a big, fun studio comedy again. It's just, it wasn't. Um, it certainly wasn't me. It mm-hmm. wasn't uh, authentically uh, s- something from my brain and my yeah. heart. So, uh, commerce it's,
1: it's and art. The tension I find it very hard. Those
0: two things, right? I, I don't want to yeah. say I find it hard because that feels like it's justifying it and speaking into into existence, and and words have power. So, I just want to let me just say that I have in the past done everything I possibly can to procrastinate, and I aspire going forward to be more disciplined with putting my butt in the chair.
1: Right, so when you get the call, like, hey, we'd love for you to come down and direct this episode of Ted Lasso or this episode of Shrinking, you can arrive on set and you get to work with like these amazing actors and bring your lends your specific unique creativity to that process Mm. and and kind of nudge it in the direction of your sensibility a little bit. But these are big machines. Yeah, But they pay well and it's great. And you're like, look at my career, I'm doing good. But ultimately in the way that like this podcast is a distraction from me (laughs) writing another book, those things are distractions from you being the writer director who creates your own movies from well, your- I wouldn't
0: use lasso and, and shrinking as examples because first of all, they're very short commitments relative uh you know it's basically uh-huh. a six day shoot and a two week prep for a half hour episode of television right, but uh, that's
1: three weeks of like I don't really have to sit down and write. No, but because i ch- this other I thing. do
0: find it very fulfilling. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I'm not going to yeah, be a director yeah. for hire. First of all, in the case of Lasso, I was. It was. It was episode two, the episode about the biscuits. It was. It was a really amazing opportunity to help set the whole tone of the show. Mm. So I was really honored that I got that slot because it was episode two of Ted Lasso, kind of introduces the audience to like, yeah. oh, this is also going to break your heart, this show. And then my episode of Shrinking, which just aired, um, was also sort of a seminal episode of of season one. Um, So for me, I I really love doing it. I think that those can coexist. It's really what I'm talking about is, you know, uh, being on the internet, uh, uh, taking up 10 hobbies, uh, doing things that are anything to distract from what I feel like I should be doing, which is writing films. And also keep in mind, when you write a film, it's then a huge process to try and get it made. Then you shoot it and you cut it, then you have to wait. In this case, I waited so long for it to finally come out and it's finally coming out um, March 24th. Right, because you finished this thing, yeah, as you mentioned, yeah. like a year and a half ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so this is, by my point is there's yeah. a lot of downtime that A, yes, my first priority, I believe mm-hmm. um, if I'm if I'm being true to myself should be writing. But in terms of, I don't wanna go direct TV, I don't believe in, but in terms of directing things that are my taste and that I love, I, I enjoy doing. that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it 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 is creatively nourishing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm, I'm, cool. I'm getting to make Harrison Ford, uh, helping him be his hilarious self. And it's crazy. I've only watched the first episode of Shrinking. Oh, so really- you're
1: you rep- you're like episode eight or something like
0: that. I'm episode direct, eight, right? but it's really I, I got to uh-huh. tell you, I know I'm biased, but I'm, I'm only a little biased because all I did was direct episode eight. I, I have no connection to the show other than that, mm-hmm. and the show is wonderful. And I think. You'll I think. really like it, Rich, because it it, it overlaps with a lot of things that I think you're interested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The mental health discussion. Yeah.
1: Um, It is funny to see Harrison Ford in a comedy. He's hilarious. And what's crazy about that guy is that I thought he was like this sort of, you know, kind of crusty rascal who didn't really wanna work anymore and, and was sort of sailing off into the sunset. And suddenly he's in like everything. Guy's like working more than he's ever worked in his entire life. I think he loves working. I think he loves
0: flying and he loves working. (laughs) He He loves flying. But I uh, got to keep him out of that plane and, and, and no one's gonna keep know, him crashing plane. onto
1: golf courses.
0: Well, uh, in his defense, that's a glass half full, glass half empty conversation. I would say he lost an engine in a plane and successfully landed on a golf course.
1: Yeah, I have a friend who's in, you're a pilot, yeah. right? So uh, I have a friend, a good friend who's a pilot and he was flying over the desert just a couple of weeks ago and had an engine failure and had yeah. to land on a, I, this is something that happens yeah. when you People fly People make those jokes planes, about Harrison
0: right? Ford flying and I'm like, <laughs> the guy landed a plane on a golf course. Uh, how about Applaud him. A <laughs>
1: right. Um, but you must have like those moments of, is this real?
0: Like, you know, yeah. Harrison, it's, it's crazy, right? Yeah, especially when he says my name. Uh, uh, <laughs> that one's really trippy yeah. because, uh, I, you know, there's still people I geek out about. And, mm-hmm. and when Harrison, uh, you know, first got to know him, he, he didn't, I don't think he knew my name. But then when he learned my name and was calling me by my name, it was pretty, the little kid of me was pretty giddy. Right.
1: <laughs> so over the years, uh, you've worked with De Niro, like Tommy Lee Jones, mm. right? Michael Caine, like some of the some of the greats, right? Yeah. Like, what do you learn from? Like, what makes those people so good? Are there commonalities? Are there themes across? You know, these people that we revere for this thing that they do that we can learn from? I think courage,
0: real uh, courage, to go all out without a net and 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 trust that the filmmaker is going to be their safety net and 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 make sure that it works. I would say all of those people show up and are present and go all out. And sometimes even them these legends sometimes it's too much, mm. sometimes it's too little, sometimes it's not right. That's one of the things I really learned is it's not always even the geniuses, it's not always right, but they're trying things and they're playing and, they, and they're exploring and they're, they're looking for it. Just like a painter who, who keeps painting over their, their, their painting. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're hunting for it. And, um, and with, with real uh, courage. So I, I think that's one thing I've really taken from the great masters I've had a chance to work mm-hmm. with. And as the director, your job is
1: just to kind of like calibrate those choices and kind of get them in the line, in in the in the kind of lane of the tone
0: of the film. Absolutely, right? like, and it depends on the actor. Some will, I've worked with some, I won't say specific names, but I worked with one legend who'd do one take like right in the zone where I wanted it. And then he'd do one minuscule. And then he'd do one huge, and you were like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> yeah, he's giving you choices. But he's, but he's not he's giving me choices, but he's kind of playing himself and try. I mean, playing with it himself to try and figure out what's right. Mm-hmm. And then there are other great masters who were like, there was one take. That was it. I know I'm me. That was great, right? And you're like, <laughs> whoa, whoa, slow down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And then you as the director have to be able to like, have a hard conversation with somebody that you have you're to have like, balls. am I, I got- really gonna like, you know, step up to this Absolutely. dude? Do you right? know how many
0: times in a trailer, Rich, I have given myself pep talks in the mirror of a trailer, <laughs> being like, you have to have balls. <laughs> right. Like whether it was acting with De Niro, I was, I was his co-star, this movie hasn't come out yet, but it's, it's, uh, it's a comedy with De Niro and I'm his co-star. And I, I was like, this is the moment you've been waiting for. If you are a a wimp in this scene and don't go all out and uh-huh. don't go toe to toe with De Niro. You know, I had this scene where I'm screaming at him and it's a it's a comedy, but it's I'm screaming at him. And the same thing with Morgan Freeman. It's like, if Morgan's over it and you haven't gotten it, you have to be brave. You have to not be a wimp. You have to not be intimidated. So I definitely give myself these pep talks in the mirror in the trailer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine. That's wild, man. When you're sitting down to write, like, do you have a routine? Like, okay, these are the hours that I do it, or do you just strike when the inspiration hits? Or, you know, how do you, like, I'm just thinking about like the conversation that I had with Robert McKee. Like everything's yeah. structure. So, yeah. do you have characters? do no. uh, You start McKee- with character. Do you start with plot? Like, how do you figure out these stories?
0: I really want to take Robert McKee's class, by the way, because I've never he's written done it. now. Though. I know, but like there's, he's, there's a oh, video. It, he I should do a masterclass. After, by the way, after your he should do a masterclass. Yeah. But after your your podcast with him, I went on his site, and there's there is something in April. Maybe it's pre recorded. I don't huh. know, mm. but. Um, I, it's definitely um, virtual, it's not like yeah. a, in, but I really, even though he bummed me out a lot of his stuff he said, when he said film <laughs> yeah, is gonna like, be like ballet. I think I that. texted you. Yeah, you were like, like ballet? I was like, Rich, I was like, I texted. It's all up to you though. Like if, if
1: a good person succeeds, then there's hope.
0: Zach. Well, I'm trying. I hope people go. Please don't make uh, the theatrical experience (laughs) like ballet. Uh, Yeah. That's what Robert McKee said. But um, I've never written like that. I think that that's very helpful to a lot of people. And I actually would love to take a class because Mm -hmm. I've never had a class like that. And I think I would get a lot out of it. But it's not the way I write at all because I have to see, I kind of see the way I write. And I don't know if this is unique to me, or maybe other actor writers write like this, but I kind of improvise the scenes out loud to myself. And then I write them as I go. So I kind of get into character as each person in the scene and then improvise the conversation Mm -hmm. and then write as I go. So you're writing
1: dialogue, from the get-go as yes. opposed to just conceptualizing like the arc of a story Absolutely. and figuring out who what who these people are and what they want and Absolutely. what the obstacles are.
0: Now in are. the macro, I'll have an idea of, I'm gonna start this thing. And I think the beginning is this and the middle is this, mm-hmm. and then it, it'll it'll get to there. I have a, a GPS point set, if you will. Mm-hmm. But and I don't- Do you know the ending? N- not always. In Garden State, I, I completely yeah. changed the ending.
1: I mean, Tarantino talks about that. He's like, I just keep going. And then what I, do. I figure out the ending because I'm just following these people and what they would do next. I agree
0: with that school yeah. of thought from that great master. I really kind of write a scene and when it works, and again, I, I have a vague idea where, I'm, where I wanna go, but I, when it works, I go, well, then what would happen? Now, I'm not always ready to write that scene. I might go, oh, what's probably gonna happen is their next interior mm-hmm. cafe, so-and-so and so-and-so we're gonna have an argument. I might just write that and not be ready to write that dialogue, but then I'll go, and then what would happen? Well, she's gonna have to go confront her father. I'm ready to write that one. I have Mm. have some ideas for that one. So that one I'll just just do a messy first, you know, like throwing paint up on the canvas. Mm -hmm. It's not always all great, but it's just, Blah, Let yourself. Getting it Be up bad there, and getting, getting it out there. Because if you're not sitting there with, doing that, yeah. you need to get this stuff out so that all of a sudden you're going to write. You know, some scenes in Garden State were just first passes. I never touched them again because I was in a good flow state and something really meaningful came out. Mm-hmm. Same thing with a good person. Um, but then, of course, of course, there's tons of scenes you, you toss and you're like, I don't agree with Robert McKee said he was saying that like 90% of it he throws away. I, I definitely don't do that. Yeah. Um,
1: what was interesting in, in watching A Good Person was that there were multiple occasions where you know, the characters arrive at a certain point and there's a very kind of predictable thing that you're primed to expect to happen because you've seen it in movies before, right? And then, and then you would make a different choice. Like it would be like, oh, this is where this is, this person's gonna do this. And then actually they do this other thing and you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, okay. That's, that's we're gonna a, go in a different we're gonna go somewhere new with this thing that defies like that trope.
0: You well, know? that's the highest comment you yeah. can give me. Thank you. I, I think that you know, even as a writer, you find yourself going, we've all seen so many movies, right? Mm-hmm. So you, your brain starts to go, yeah, go here. And right. and you can't help but because we're all conditioned from watching, you know, forty seven years or whatever, how old you are of yeah. uh, movies.
1: And there's certain things about those tropes. They're tropes because there's aspects of them that work, right, and yeah, we were chatting before, like when the person is sitting in the AA meeting, like this is the moment for exposition. Like you kind of need that, or like that serves a purpose, right? But even in the- But how do you do something different with that?
0: But also without giving any spoilers, the way I do it is it might be a time, AA share might be a good moment for exposition, but it's also a moment to throw a fucking loop at the audience and mm-hmm. do a reveal that they're certainly not expecting. Yeah. Which is what happens. Yeah, right. there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of those in there. Um, but there are certain things that, that, you know, one thing about the Robert McKee thing that I really do believe and follow is that everything you've ever watched at 30 minutes in, we enter the new world. Mm-hmm. Because it, this is something that audiences are completely conditioned to expect. And if you can, any movie you're watching, I mean, obviously there's exceptions, but 99% of films that you watch at 30 minutes in, we enter the new thing. So the first 30 minutes have been setting up. This is the way things are. This is the status quo. There's an inciting incident. Build the world. And then at 30 minutes in, especially a studio movie, you can check mm-hmm. your watch, it'll be 30 minutes. You, The new thing begins. But they, the inciting 30, incident is usually at like 10 minutes, right? That's all, that can vary. But one uh-huh. thing's for certain, uh, they set off on the new thing at 30 minutes. Right. And that's an example of something that if you go and test a film and and you're not doing that, uh, an audience won't know exactly how to articulate it, but they will say like, it felt slow. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is, you didn't start the new thing at 30 minutes because everything I've ever watched <laughs> starts the right. new thing at 30 so minutes. So you have this
1: unconscious expectation. And if that's not met, you feel like, oh, this isn't working, but you don't even know, like the it's average kind of person like doesn't song. even really quite It's kind know of like why. song
0: structure. Right. Right? You yeah. know, when like like it's gonna have a bridge, it's gonna yeah. do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus, or something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a songwriter, so I don't know, but audiences like listeners know that that's how most songs are. right? And I think audiences know like, you know, the hero's journey, sure, general sense of the traditional arc of, of a film. So mm-hmm. you, ha- you have to, you don't have to do anything but people are conditioned to be used to some rough form of that.
1: Yeah, it's uh it's in saying like you don't have to do that, like it reminds me of Adaptation, like the sort of internal tension and battle between the identical twins, which of course, it's a multiple personality movie, right? (laughs) Like Charlie Kaufman is at war with himself because on the one hand, and McKee said this from his experience with him, he wants to be the artist, but he also wants to write the blockbuster. To write the blockbuster, you have to follow this sort of semi-formulaic thing where you're meeting these expectations, but how do you express and explore art Within that, and it's those two things butting up against each other, and when you find that right, you know, when you can make those things work together, is when you create something, you know, kind of amazing and unique.
0: Yeah, like adaptation, right? Um, the rare thing that is both artful and accessible enough for enough people to justify being in the theater is mm-hmm. the sweet spot, right? Right, because so many of these um, um, films that are awardsy or or, or really boutique, a, a niche audience, they aren't necessarily accessible to, to an, uh, enough people in 2023 to justify it being in theatrical experience Yeah, yeah. because um, it's not commercial enough. Yeah, and it's a
1: weird conundrum because there's never been more avenues and opportunities for filmmakers with the streamers, right? There's just so much content out Mm. there and so much creativity that it's almost challenging as a consumer. Like, what do I watch next? Like, There's a lot of amazing shit out there. And yet the funnel towards like a theatrical release has never been narrower.
0: It's very, very hard to get a theatrical release these days, um, particularly for something that's not spectacle. Um, Another thing I got out of your Seth Godin episode was his thing about you have to give the audiences the why. Why go to the theater for this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's obvious when it's when it's spectacle. Oh, I want to see that on a big screen. Or if it's the whale with Brendan Fraser, the why is oh, I'm excited for Brendan Fraser's comeback. Mm-hmm. I want I root for Brendan Fraser. I want to go see that. And I think the the why for a good person is that not only is it a really special thing to see this extraordinary ingenue Florence Pugh go toe to toe with this legend, Morgan Freeman. But I really believe, and it's probably because of my love of of the theater. I still go to the theater in in New York all the time, but there is something that is very lost seeing something emotional and immersive alone at home. There's something really beautiful about sharing that experience Mm -hmm. with uh, strangers in a room. And the laughter that happens, the pin drop silence that we experience, the sniffles we hear when there's an emotional moment, I still really long for that experience and and I hope there's enough people that that still do because um it certainly is is rare and rare these days yeah
1: well i I you know was not prepared to be emotional, but it it did i mean it cuts close to home because of my own it 's very different from my story, but it explores certain terrain that i 'm familiar with and and you know I found myself you know definitely emotional watching it like and I think there is something about that shared experience that that is special. And I think the power in it, not to kind of like harp on this again, but the power in it for me is that, yes, there's an arc and there's a three act structure and all of that, but it's not all tied up in a nice little bow. Like it really does show you like how gnarly and messy and confusing this process of grappling with grief and and, you know, just how fucking hard it is to be a human and to come to terms with like difficult emotions that all of us face. Like we may not all be in the extreme situation of being in a car accident or, you know, having a, a an opioid addiction or whatever it is, but you know, you don't get out of this life alive and we all face fucking crazy bullshit and obstacles. Like life doesn't go the way that we plan it to go, which is really the narrative of the show. It's like, there's kind of a beautiful sort of trajectory lined up for these characters and then everything goes sideways goes haywire and you know i think most people like experience some version of that in their lives and then have to grapple with how to you know get right with themselves make peace with it and move forward in a healthy way Absolutely. you know and we do we don't do this elegantly like this is not a clean process for anybody and i feel like the movie you know appreciated that nuance of the human condition. Well,
0: thank you very much. And I wanted the audience to see themselves in the characters. Like you just said very articulately, they're not they're not necessarily gonna have the horror of a fatal car accident, or perhaps they don't know someone um, battling an opioid addiction. But I wrote it, I intended to write it in such a way that and people would see their own selves in the film, whether it's it, whatever their lowest point is, the film is about standing back up. The film is about mm-hmm. the drive and the hope to continue after a really dark time. And that, for you, that could be a divorce or it could be a depression or it could be losing your job or it could be whatever. Insert your low point here. It's really, the, the film is really a discussion of the the human uh, uh, capability to stand back up with community, with friendship, with love, the ability to go on and still have hope.
1: yeah you mentioned, uh, you know, beautifully put, you mentioned that you're not a songwriter, but you do have this, you know, uncanny facility for knowing exactly the right needle drop at exactly the right moment, right? Like you could have had a a very successful career as a a music supervisor. You know how to, uh, you know, kind of find the right music to uh, help tell your stories. Thank you. And, you know, this is... You've never been more, uh, you know, successfully uh, exemplified than in Garden State. Like you basically like put the shins on the map. This you create this. Uh, soundtrack album from that mm. experience. You go, you win a Grammy, which is nuts. Cause like, I'm sure it didn't even occur to you. And, and it, went like, it went it platinum. It went platinum too. But the, way, here's, the best,
0: here's the best part of the story. Well, there's two parts of the story. One is that I idolized Quentin Tarantino uh-huh. and I've only met him like twice. And the first time I met him was after I, I saw him at the Independent Spirit Awards after I'd beaten him for the Grammy for uh, original soundtrack. <laughs> That's unbelievable. <laughs> and he came up to the, he comes up to me and he goes, you stole my fucking Grammy, man. <laughs> And I was like, is he kidding? Is he serious? I love this man, please love me. And he kind of smiled and he was, he was taking the piss as, as, as the English say. Uh-huh. But, um, but that was really surreal because uh, the idea that I would win a trophy over uh, Quentin Tarantino. Was that like for which- I think it was you, the second Kill Bill maybe. So it wasn't Pulp I mean, no, Pulp no, Fiction no, 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 is iconic. No.
1: I mean, it's still that iconic, but also, you know, Garden State iconic for that soundtrack.
0: The, the story of that is the ultimate um, don't give up Story. All those songs were songs I was listening to at the time and songs I loved and I put them in you know, the Avid, which is the computer mm-hmm. we edit on for my cut. But there's not a single person in town that didn't tell me, you're not gonna get any of those songs, right. we it's, have so no money. Is,
1: it's for people that don't know, when you're cutting, you do this temp track and like, these are the songs I'd like to have. We're never gonna get them, but like yeah. this is the vibe I'm going for. Yes. And yeah. what
0: happens is you get temp love. You yeah. fall in love with that song. But we had no money. We made that movie for two and a half million dollars. We didn't have money to license all of these incredible songs. And I was told by anyone and everyone, you will never get those songs. You need to start replacing them. And in the spirit of being too young and and not knowing what I didn't know, I was like, no, I'm gonna get them. Mm. I'm gonna get them. I didn't know it at the time, but I was manifesting, I was manifesting that there was no way I was not gonna get all of those songs. And I got every single one. And to what do you account that? Like, how did that- Just not taking no for an answer. Persistence? Mm Persistence, not getting stuck, not going into the fetal, I'm sure I went into the fetal position a couple of times, but not taking no for an answer. Um, I remember, you know, for example, the Paul Simon people, uh, Only live in Boy in New York, it was one of the hardest ones to get because it's probably Mm -hmm. the biggest, most expensive in a normal world where you're paying full rate, probably the most expensive song on the album. And it was a hell no, hell no, hell no, hell no. And then I said, what if we got his manager into a screening room? And we just showed him the moment how it's used. And they were like, he's not gonna come. I go, just, let's just try. And we, the manager came with a few people and they sat in the screening room at CAA alone and they watched the movie. And at the time the Paul Simon song came on, I looked over and they were all swiping their eyes. And they said, absolutely, we'll do it. Wow. And then cut to that whole summer, Paul Simon was on tour and he started playing Only Living Boy in New York and he never used to play it. And he was saying, you know, I never played this song anymore, but there's this movie that came out called Garden State. And he started playing Only Living Boy in New York on tour. That's gotta be such a crazy mind fuck. So, and that happened with every yeah. track. It was you like- know, What else is on, you have Nick Drake. There's so many incredible yeah. songs on it and you know, a little by little, the puzzle. Once I got Coldplay, and then once I got Nick Drake, and then once I got Paul Simon. Other people that were smaller artists started saying, "Like, oh well, if, if the, the cool kids are doing it, we'll do it." And, right. And and we you know we we figured out a, a deal that was a that was a, that no one ever thought they'd see money from, but mm-hmm. was a back end deal where you know in a world where someone buys this soundtrack, you'd make money. Thinking like, ha ha, that's never going to happen. But thank you for loaning us your song at a rate we can afford. And then the thing goes on to be platinum. And That's they all wild. made lots of money off of it.
1: Did that lead to people contacting you simply to like music supervise their
0: movies or to a consult deal. on the music? I did have a deal. It's, it's <laughs> probably the only deal like this in the history of deals. But uh, I was, I starred in a movie called The Last Kiss. Yeah. Um, that I didn't direct. Some people think I directed that movie, but uh, Tony Goldman, uh, the actor director so Paul, did. Paul Haggis, wrote, Paul Haggis yeah. wrote the screenplay. And I, um, my deal was to star and to the soundtrack, <laughs> that was my deal. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's very unique. I don't know if anyone's yeah. ever had that deal before, but that was my deal. Uh huh. So you're like, I'll do it,
1: but I also I have to do the music. Also. Well, I was thrilled
0: to do it. I really mm-hmm. loved the script. It right. was a, it was an adaptation of a, a very very popular uh, Italian film called L'ultimo bacio, and um, I was thrilled to be in it. And and but I was so hot off the tales of Garden State that they said, Hey, will you also do our soundtrack? Right. And I was like.
1: You have the golden touch. I was
0: like, please. music,
1: yeah, that's cool. So the Oscars are tonight. Like, what, how do you, like when you cast your gaze on, you know, the movies that are being feted and mm. the kind of movies that are getting made, like how do you think about the state of Hollywood? And is it headed towards that ballet situation that McKee talked about?
0: I think the jury's still out. We are watching it all change before our eyes in the spirit of Seth Godin uh audiences need a story as to why a particular film is worth making the trek to the theater cinephiles of course mm-hmm. there's a group of cinephiles who who will always go those are the people like the people who buy vinyl to to listen to music sure. but what is the story that beyond beyond just the category of oh it's a giant spectacle you need to see it on the big screen um um it, it, it the, the jury is still out on 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 whether whether films will still be released theatrically that are not in that category
1: and i think the that the jury is out on an explanation as to why the general public the public at large should care about this art form yeah and i, I think it becomes harder for that person to care when the choices they're being offered are are just amusement park rides versus you know kind of challenging narratives well, that I'm trying create, to help, Rich. That's yeah, why I know I a movie. this is this is, <laughs> this is why you're here today. Like I'm, I am, I'm doing, help me, help you, a so good act. person. I'm here, like, <laughs> a good person. March twenty fourth. <laughs> yes. There you go, there you go. But at the same time, like. I'm on these streamers and I'm like seeing, I just, I'm so nourished by, you know, all different kinds of storytelling formats that aren't necessarily the kind, you know, like, like the 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 sort of advent of the limited series, like, I'm like, like watching, like,
0: I don't know, crime stories set in Iceland and like all this stuff. That's I know, but opened it's a separate experience.
1: It is. That's a different what thing. What I want to
0: savor and what I hope Mr. McKee is wrong about it becoming ballet is that there is, just a very sacred experience of going into a theatrical house and sitting with strangers and watching a piece of art and also this societal agreement for most people that we turn off our phones for two hours and immerse ourselves in a story. And at home we're pausing and we're checking our phone mm-hmm. and we're saying, did you feed the dog? And all of this stuff that is not immersing yourself in a story. Now, again, I'm a theater lover and goer. So I I, I had that experience with live theater, which is, which is for the community of people that are into that. We know that, mm-hmm. but uh, I, for the cinematic experience, I pray that that doesn't go away because I, I find it, uh, um, very, very special and, and, um, and, and, and not something that's akin to watching your favorite streaming program. Mm-hmm. It is fully immersive and there's something magical about being around um, other people experiencing the same thing. Yeah, amen
1: to that. Um, but we need more good movies in the pipeline. I'm doing all I can. Yeah, <laughs> you, are, you are. I know you are. Um, it's funny, because I, when I was you, I, the movie's not out, so I got like a link to see a screener, and, and, uh, and then in the middle, like I, I snapped a little photo and I sent it to you, and you're like, focus, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, don't, yeah, do, you're, you're being wait. the guy. Being, <laughs> I know, I was like, then I felt terrible. Right, I was like, You're being the guy, terrible, right? like, being the guy who's on his phone. Yeah. But you know good. why? You were at home. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't have done that in a the theater. Of course, That's you wouldn't true. have.
0: That's true. And um, and and you're and I just I submit you're going to get way more lost in the theater in, yeah, into a
1: story. I agree. Yeah. Um, for for the aspiring writer, creator, filmmaker who who's listening to this, um, what is the, you know, what is the the kind of inspiration or or, or the advice that you can give that person? Who's embarking upon a career or thinking about um, exploring storytelling as a as a lifestyle? As a life. well, a
0: famous writer I right. forgot who it is said uh, being a writer is signing up to have homework for the rest of your life. Yeah, um, is that Lawrence Kasdan? I think it's Lawrence Kasdan. Yeah. yeah, which I think is very accurate. Or
1: having a podcast, it's pretty good for having homework all the time.
0: <laughs> but a podcast is communal. Yeah, that's true. A podcast—you yeah. have friends, you have crew members, uh-huh. you have this beautiful studio. Uh, writing is sitting alone at a blinking cursor, telling yourself you suck. Um, it's hard. That's why I would tell people. I, I, won't, I won't be as um, sc- try and scare anyone away from it, um, but know that it's that I'm this deep into it and I battle procrastination, I battle working. So, I would say develop very early on. I mean, you've had some of these amazing mm. people on your podcast. The, let's say the, the guy who wrote War of Art, mm-hmm. Stephen Pressfield. Yeah, Stephen Pressfield mm-hmm. and, and, um, and the like. Um, you know, you have to develop a system very early on, something I never did, that, that is fail safe for you working and producing content. And that is in in 2023. That is very much turning off your Wi-Fi and getting your phone out of the room. Um, there are so many distractions. Um, and then I believe with 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 Mr. Pressfield, it's about putting your butt in the chair and not being afraid to not know what it is today, but getting in the chair and showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's. It's like running with an elephant on your back if you're if you're trying to do it with your phone in your hand. Um, Are you able to take that sensibility, that energy, and get right back into it? Yeah, like in I'm, that I'm, press this, this field thing, I'm, like
1: as soon as you lock it, you're on to the next. For the first time in yeah. my life,
0: I'm 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 like halfway uh, cool. through a new uh, screenplay now. Um, yeah. but that's with a lot of uh, that's with maturity and also um, really coaching myself and working with people. Um, my therapist in particular um uh, who's a cognitive behaviorist uh, was just very very valuable to me de- of developing systems that um support you not failing um so what would be an example of that um uh, making commitments to produce pages to people um even he i mean i i have i have uh, you know people i work with in terms of like who i who i get thoughts on my writing but even my therapist uh, even if he uh is not gonna read them. He, just external. He will say accountability. like, um so um how many pages are you gonna send me by by Friday? Mm. So that's just one example of a system that's in place. I'm I I am I am committed to turning in work. Um I have this light board thing. I think I sent you a link to it that, yeah. that really helps me. Um, it's, a, uh, it's just this, and you can literally do this with a paper calendar and, and do stickers on it. Like you can, when you're potty training your kid, uh, it's a matter of like um, uh, giving yourself uh, a going for a streak. That is to say you only get a sticker or, a, or you light the thing up. My, my therapist actually said you can do it with a light, he's, with his clients have done it with a light bright before. Uh-huh. But the point is you're only, you wanna go for a streak just like I know people who are doing, uh, who are who are in a program and, work and going for sobriety, want a streak. Uh, it is it is how many days can I write in a row, or how many how many how many days will I mm-hmm. commit to someone, whether it be my partner or myself, or whomever your therapist, that I will write Monday through Friday for a minimum of four hours a day, and um, and when I don't, I've have I've 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 dropped my streak. And there's mm-hmm. something about a streak that's very powerful.
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, like how reptilian the human brain is, like. But momentum is real, Absolutely. and once you bank a few days, and you got a little bit of energy behind it, and you're going to put that little light bulb in the thing, yeah. like
0: you're like that's enough, you no, know. I was telling to you get this, you to get keep going. I was telling you this um, when we when we met that I I was uh, working on uh, taking a break from alcohol and that I and uh, I found. That if I printed a paper calendar and literally I got I ordered stickers on Amazon and I would just when I didn't drink that day, I would put a sticker on the on the calendar and it worked for me. Mm -hmm. I I was like, I'm not gonna not get my my (laughs) I I gotta get my sticker. I want my fucking sticker.
1: (laughs) I'm not gonna gonna, dumb. I don't don't even
0: want this glass of wine. (laughs) I want my sticker. (laughs) Oh my god.
1: (laughs) It's like I don't know whether to be encouraged by that or just think humanity is doomed. You know.
0: Well, I think it's. Um, I don't know. You say it's reptilian, um, but I think. Um, I don't know. I, I guess my my therapist says it best: is that there's a lot of power in a streak. Yeah, I know that. That's, that's for a, sure. That, that there, there's it's empowering to say I'm not going to fuck up now. Yeah, you got to respect the momentum. Yeah, and, and protect it. You know, and create boundaries around it. And- I love that your episode. Um, I forgot the name of the guy who. Um, did um, um, uh, a one year no beer? Oh, Andy Romich. Yeah, yeah, it's that great. was an amazing yeah, episode. Cool. So that, that that was a lot of things he said too with, in, the, in the in the with regard to alcohol and you know finding that space for for people that don't necessarily think they need a, a, to work a program um, think they can probably do it on their own. Um, uh, but but also want to want to rethink their attitude t- mm-hmm. towards alcohol consumption. Uh, I, I thought that was, you know, he talks about streaks, and that's the whole idea behind it is is like yeah. do twenty eight days, you know, do ninety days, and uh, I found that incredibly empowering.
1: Yeah, he you you can always go back to what you were doing before, and I think what's cool about that movement um, that that Andy helped create is, like you said, there's a lot of people out there that wouldn't classify themselves as alcoholics, but you know. Get to a certain age, like, hey, do I really need to be hungover today? Like, yeah. why do I, you know, go out and binge every other weekend or whatever it is? Um, but when you're in a culture where that's just the thing that you do, it can be difficult for social reasons to opt out of that mm-hmm. and to have like a community of people to support you in finding a different way. Um, and then, and then, you know, uh, 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 experiencing what it's like to be alcohol-free for perhaps the first time, and yeah. and seeing how much better you feel, and how, I'm, how I'm, more present I'm, you I'm are I'm in your life, and how more productive you are. I'm doing it healthier. I will, all of I will be honest cool. and tell
0: you that I'm doing it. Um, yeah. um I uh, I'm taking on his challenge. Nice, and um, and um, I have you to thank, man. I really, I really thank mm. you so much for for bringing. I'm sure there's other people listening and if you haven't you have to go listen to that episode. Um I never felt I never saw anything in my life that spoke so directly to me and my relationship with alcohol because I never felt like I would I would certainly uh, go to AA if I if I uh, felt I needed to and and and, and, and maybe we will make that decision one day but I I just felt that episode was so and his work is so genius because it, it 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 hits a sliver of the population that hadn't necessarily been addressed before, mm-hmm. which is like, why do I why am I doing this habit? And and, and for people that, that do have the power to to just to to not work a program yeah. and, and just try and say no. Like, yeah. What would my life be like without it? Mm-hmm. So that was very, very, very um, powerful to me. And I'm um, going I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm I'm aiming to go six months and see what happens, but I uh, I feel fucking great. That's awesome, man. Well, you're here today for
1: me to help you get the word out about your movie, but I feel like. I'm getting more out of this from you promoting. No, I'm promoting your show, I was including cro- in your London. joke of like, uh, yeah, I just got back from the United Kingdom promoting your podcast. Well, I'm I was in the Chris UK Evans. and I was on
0: the Chris <laughs> Evans show, and uh, and and we, in, I didn't even know that he knew you, but we started talking about, you know. Uh-huh. Anyway, I, I know I'm, i have I appreciate I it, man. I've said enough, Thanks. Rich. Yeah, but I just, but you have you have made a big difference in my life, and 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 I can imagine for so many people listening. Uh, they feel the same way.
1: Well, it's incredible uh, to hear that, and I'm working on just receiving and yeah, so I'll say thank you. Um, But it is amazing uh, and and a bit surreal as somebody who who has followed your work for a very long time and and has a ton of respect for. the the art that you share with the world, and uh, I couldn't you know be more excited about this new movie. It, like I said to you, it's it's beautifully rendered, and I think everybody should go out and check it out. Yes, thank um, you. I'm excited for you to have that experience of of having a movie back in the theaters after a very long time. It's thank pretty you. Co- it's a pretty cool and very special experience, and I hope that you can um, navigate it with presence and with gratitude and not get caught up in all those externalities that you can't control because irrespective of how it does or doesn't do, um, you should be very proud of thank what you. you created. Thank you, Rich. Yeah. And uh, it was a pleasure thank you for you here today. And you know, yeah, man, this was super cool. Thank you. So thank you. Um, we, should, we should probably tell people how to, how to find tickets and all that kind of stuff, right?
0: Yeah, Fandango is the most popular yeah, way you can, so, say you can find tickets on right. Fandango.
1: And just in the U.S. or is it internet
0: in? Um, um, in the U.K. and uh, U.S.
1: All right, cool, so check it out. You can get tickets on Fandango if you're, you're in the United States or in the U.K. And uh, first weekend, super important. Yeah, you gotta get out there right away. Yeah, please, can't wait around. Please check right? it out
0: this weekend, everybody. Yeah. I really appreciate it. All right, cheers, thanks.
1: Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo, with additional audio engineering by Cale Curtis. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis, with assistance by our creative director, Dan Drake. Portraits by Davey Greenberg, graphic and social media assets, courtesy of Daniel Solis, Dan Drake, and A.J. Akpodiete. Thank you, Georgia Whaley, for copywriting and website management. And of course, our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love, love the support. See you back here soon. Peace, plants. Namaste.